And now, The Federal Drive with Tom Temin. Hello, and thanks for joining us on this Friday, May 19th, 2023, seven minutes past the hour. I'm Tom Temin. Our producers are Eric White and Peter Masurlian, our digital editors, Daisy Thornton and Darris Lauderdale. Coming up in this hour of The Federal Drive, a longtime federal employee advocate reacts to the latest civil service reform gambit. Plus, what exactly is organic food? The USDA wants to make sure everybody follows the rules. Those stories and much more ahead during this hour of The Federal Drive. But first, the Veterans Affairs Department has decided to renew its multi-million dollar contract with Oracle Cerner for a new electronic health record. This despite the fact that the installation of the new system is on an indefinite pause. Both VA and Oracle are trying to get to the bottom of persistent outages and usability problems. The new contract, though, does include tougher penalties for Oracle Cerner if it doesn't deliver. Federal News Network's Jory Heckman brings us the latest. And Jory, I guess they're convinced they wouldn't be throwing good money after bad here, huh? Yeah, well, it's just been a rough saga with this whole effort between VA and Oracle Cerner. What we have now seen is that the contract will keep going. And at least for, you know, the short-term future here, what we saw is that unlike what was in the original contract was going to be a five-year renewal from the five years that we had already seen, what this new negotiated contract spells out is that there's going to be now five one-year renewals. So what we heard from Neil Evans, the point person for all things EHR at VA, is that this allows the VA to every year determine whether they're satisfied with the way things are going, and if not, go back to the bargaining table and impose even tougher penalties on Oracle Cerner and tougher conditions on how that EHR is supposed to perform. This new contract also includes 28 performance metrics for what Oracle Cerner needs to meet or exceed in terms of that performance. And what we've seen in the past is is that there have been persistent issues with reliability and uptime with that system. Right. So the performance metrics then include uptime, I imagine. And what are some of the other big ones? That's really the big one, the uptime, making sure that the system is avoiding crashes or degradations in service where some parts of the EHR work and others don't, or that there's lags in the system. Something else that Oracle Cerner needs to be mindful of now under this new contract is whether the VA is able to efficiently get records from private sector hospitals when needed. Community care is a growing part of VA's portfolio, working with those private care those private care providers. And something else is that the VA needs to ensure that this EHR can be interoperable with other parts of its network, things like its public-facing website, its mobile app, which is very popular with veterans these days, and other applications that are critical to veteran care. Because some of the early reports and hearings indicated that there were actual medical dangers induced by deficiencies in that system, those can't occur. And that has to be part of the performance requirement also, that it doesn't kill people. Something that we heard recently from Congress is that with this new EHR, veterans are getting double doses of the prescription medication. They're getting the wrong prescription medications, and that is creating all kinds of disruptions in care. All right. So they're going with a one-year-by-one-year renewal with penalties and so forth. So it sounds like they're getting deeper and deeper into this, actually, even if it's only a a year-at-a-time step. But at some point, you can't back out. What about the penalties? What is new there? What, What happens to Oracle if they don't meet the expectations. So there are more of these targets that Oracle Cerner needs to meet, and there is a harsher financial penalty in that case. If Oracle Cerner is unable to meet those targets, what Oracle Cerner has so far 
refunded the VA is about $325,000. Now that's a small percentage of the more than $4 billion that have been paid out under this contract so far. But what the VA has told us is that if these new contract terms were in place since 2018, when the original contract was first signed, Oracle Cerner would have paid out 30 times what it has already paid the VA. And so that would have been in the approximation of $10 million. And so these are now these standards that Oracle Cerner needs to meet, and they'll have to pay pretty substantially if they don't meet them. Interesting. And the company is okay with all of this because it takes two to tango, that is to sign a contract. Right. This is a mutually agreed upon contract here. We heard from Mike Cecilia, who's the executive vice president of Oracle Global Industries. He is the point person they bring up to Capitol Hill anytime there is an EHR hearing. And he says that this is something that reflects Oracle Cerner's best interests for the EHR and that they see this as a fair contract that they can work under. And are the people that use the system, some of the clinicians, some of the physicians, those people, are they consulted regularly with what's going on in the system, the ground level? You know, it remains to be seen what the frontline people hear about the EHR. What we have heard uh, the other way around from the ground up is that the VA clinicians and providers are very frustrated with the system. There have been a number of VA surveys about their opinion about the usability of the new EHR, and it is sometimes in the single digits in terms of that trustworthiness and that satisfaction with the EHR. Uh, other, you know, no matter how you look at it, VA providers are very frustrated with the system, and in a lot of cases, we have heard people leave the agency as a result. Yikes. And course, Capitol Hill has weighed in a lot. As we mentioned earlier, there have been hearings on this and some pretty tough hearings. There was even one legislative gambit to maybe cancel the whole thing. That's not going anywhere. I guess they still have that faith in VA. But what have lawmakers said about this new twist here with the new contract? Generally, leaders on this from both parties see this as a positive step, that there are more teeth in this contract for Oracle Cerner. We heard from Senate VA Committee Chairman John Tester. Uh, he is leading one of the big legislative efforts here that people seem to be rallying behind his EHR Performance Reset Act. And what that would do is make sure that the EHR is running efficiently at the five centers that are already using it, and that being a precondition for the VA to continue EHR go-lives, which it is not doing right now. That is on hold. And so he said that this is an encouraging step for VA and Oracle Cerner and that the committee is going to keep holding the agency's feet to the fire on this. A little bit of concern expressed by the House VA side of things, uh, their chairman, Mike Bost, and the Technology Modernization Subcommittee Chairman, Matt Rosendale. And what they said is that it is a promising step that VA is putting more teeth into this contract. But what remains to be seen is how this new contract will improve the rollout going forward if it does, in fact, go forward. And you mentioned, you know, five facilities have it running and they want that the Hill wants that to be a baseline and running properly before they expand it to others. But this is different from Vista in that each instance of Vista, the traditional system, exists in and of itself at a given VA medical center. Isn't the new Oracle Cerner EHR is supposed to be a cloud-based universal system such that you can access the same data anytime, anywhere throughout VA, plus being compatible with, with DOD's version. That was the whole stated goal of this EHR modernization is that Oracle Cerner would be the same instance at every VA medical facility wherever it's used, and that Vista is now 
40 years old in some facilities. It is this custom build wherever you go, and it's going to look different depending on where you go. It is very popular with VA clinicians, but it runs on an outdated programming language, MUMPS, that much like other legacy programs in the federal government, it's just hard to keep these people around and modern graduates aren't familiar with this programming language. All right. Anything else we need to know? I mean, the contract is now in effect and they go back to the programming board, so to speak. Right. Yeah. Well, we'll have to wait and see what the VA has in terms of updates to how those five centers are performing. What we've heard as of late is that generally they are not improving in terms of their performance, but that is the key thing to watch out for as we go forward. Federal News Network's Jory Heckman. Thanks so much. Thanks, Tom. And be sure to check out his story at federalnewsnetwork.com. Still ahead, what exactly is organic food? Well, the USDA wants to make sure everyone follows the rules. This is The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Welcome back to The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Network. In the world of food, the word organic remains somewhat vague and the rules a bit loose. Now the Agriculture Department has proposed new rules to tighten up the production and handling of food sold as organic. Here with the details, the Deputy Administrator of the National Organic Program, Dr. Jennifer Tucker. Dr. Tucker, good to have you on. Thanks for having me today. And just review for us, what exactly is organic in the context of agricultural and USDA fair labeling and selling? So organic food production really emphasizes natural processes and ingredients from farm to table. So working in concert with the environment to create our food. So no genetic engineering is allowed. The food is grown in a way that supports soil health and water quality and biodiversity and only allowed ingredients are used in processing. So again, working with the environment to produce the food we eat. So that leaves a lot of room for interpretation, and there are guidelines, more than guidelines, there are rules that food producers, handlers, retailers must follow if they're going to stick that word organic on there, correct? Absolutely. There is a very detailed set of public regulations that govern how organic food and processing is done. And those regulatory standards can be read by anyone online to really understand what goes into the organic food they choose to buy. And there is an enforcement mechanism, correct? And how does that work? I mean, how do you possibly get everywhere that you need to get to? Organic operates as a kind of public-private partnership where the USDA accredits third-party organizations that go out to every organic farm and business every single year and inspects what's happening on the farm or in the business to make sure that they are complying with those public standards that I just talked about. And they do pesticide residue testing, all sorts of activities on a farm to make sure that those rules are being followed and it's a level playing field for every everyone who engages in the process. Do you get the sense that this is a growing thing in the United States? Because all you hear about now are these different farm-to-table organizations where people buy a share and they go to the farmer's market or a truck pulls up to a church parking lot and you pick out your turnips and your apples and your vegetables and stuff. That seems to be growing. More people are doing this, aren't they? 
Organic is growing as a market in both size and complexity. So for more than 10 years, organic sales in the United States have continued to rise. And the number of certified organic farms and businesses around the world has continued to grow. All right. So now the Agriculture Department has proposed new rules, not so much for the labeling, but for really what I would call the supply chain from the grower to the handler. And I guess something can come in in handling and distribution that can render something contrary to the rules for organic. Right. As the world changes and businesses expand into new areas, regulations need to change with it. So organic is really a very important part of the U.S. food system. It has been growing and expanding in complexity because consumers value and are buying organic products. So we have recently updated our rules simply to reflect the growing complexity and size of market to make sure that we can trace organic products from the shelf right back to the farm where it was originally. Well, what do the new rules do that's different? What can a grower expect? What can a distributor expect? What are you hoping for here? So when the organic rules were originally put in place almost 20 years ago, supply chains were shorter. We've all learned a lot about supply chains over the past few years, and organic is no different. The supply chains have grown longer. Right now, the rules do allow some people along that supply chain, so for example, commodity brokers, to not be certified, so not be covered by one of those third-party certifiers that I mentioned before. This rule requires all of those businesses to to be certified so that we can very quickly find our way back from a product back again to the farm. So it increases the robustness of that traceability so that we can catch bad actors fast in the system. Anytime there's an opportunity to make money, there are also going to be bad guys who choose to enter the field. And so more traceability from farm to market will help us stop any fraud in the system before it happens. We're speaking with Dr. Jennifer Tucker. She is administrator of the National Organic Program at the Agriculture Department. And so the new rules will require more people to become certified, that is, that are not required to be certified now. Will it change anything for people that have already been certified, say, at the producer or the seller level? Some businesses will need to make changes in their record-keeping system to provide all of the support for that traceability. Another new requirement that's very important will be the requirement for what are called import certificates. So any USDA certified product or any product that is overseen by another government with an organic program, all of those products will need to be identified with import certificates. And so over the last couple of years, we worked very closely closely with Customs and Border Protection to maximize the use of existing import systems to better identify and be able to trace organic products. So that's a new requirement that will be a big help in protecting imports coming in from around the world. Because one of the requirements has to do with labeling of non-retail containers, that is the container, say, on the ship that comes from another country or in some kind of a crate on a truck, right? Right. So many of us like to eat, for example, organic fruits and vegetables. And if you're in the winter in New England, it can be hard to come by. And so we do rely on imports to help provide those organic fruits and vegetables that we like to eat. And those do come in those large non-retail containers. So huge containers of grapes, for example, or berries coming over the border. We need to know where they're coming from and we need to be able to trace it back to the farm to make sure that all of those organic practices 
practices were followed to protect soil health and biodiversity and all those other climate smart attributes that define organic. And we should point out, if people really like to get into the weeds section by section of the rules, you have published a side-by-side before and after PDF there that's online that's pretty good. We won't go into some of the really deep arcana here. But one other question I had, too, are you hoping that this will improve the safety of organic food? Because food that does not benefit from the most potent pesticides, for example, could potentially have bugs or some disease on it that even though it's organic, it could be actually dangerous. Is this part of the equation here? So organic food follows the same food safety protocols as other foods sold in the United States. We're talking about a method of production and processing here that emphasizes natural processes, but that certainly doesn't remove all the food safety practices that are overseen by other agencies in the federal family. But it sounds like this expands the idea of organic, so it's not necessarily farm to table. You know, there's not a hay-laden, wooden, old flatbed truck that was carrying picked potatoes right to the farmer's market. I mean, there's processing, there's distribution, there's repackaging. There's a lot of those things that you get with non-organic food. And it sounds like you're making sure that they're all in line with the two endpoints, so to speak. Absolutely. It's really important that those organic potatoes, for example, be transported and processed in a way that doesn't introduce ingredients that are not allowed under the organic program and that there isn't what we call commingling or mixing of organic product and non-organic product. When consumers choose that organic option, they are choosing a product that is produced using organic methods and our job is to protect that choice. Will there be new labeling requirements at some point? The labeling that the customer sees will remain the same. There are more labeling requirements related to, for example, paperwork of um, very clearly identifying product on invoices and other records as organic to help with that traceability. And we mentioned those non-retail containers to make sure that everyone handling that product along the supply chain understands that they're working with organic product and understands what that means. And what is the status of the rule now? How long do people have to comment? What's the calendar for this? So the rule is final now. It went through a long period of a a proposed rule and public comment. We got great feedback from many, many organizations and people involved in organic trade as well as consumer groups. So the rule was published in uh, January. We are now in what's called an implementation period where businesses have time to update their systems to match the requirements of the rule. It will be fully implemented, uh, which means we will start enforcing the new provisions next March. Now, we've been enforcing the seal all along. We'll simply be adding on the enforcement of these new requirements starting next March. Dr. Jennifer Tucker is administrator of the National Organic Program at the Agriculture Department. Thanks so much for joining me. Thanks for having me today. And we'll post this interview along with a link to the new rules at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the organic Federal Drive wherever you get your podcasts. Still to come, the Defense Logistics Agency moves away from a legacy application in COBOL. But first, a longtime federal employee advocate reacts to the latest civil service reform gambit. This is The Federal Drive with Tom Tamman here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Welcome back to The Federal Drive with Tom Tamman here on Federal News Network. 
It may not be likely to become law, but a new bill to reform federal civil service shows how deeply some members of Congress feel about the issue. Republican Senator Rick Scott's bill would turn all federal employees, not just senior executives, into employees at will. For one reaction, we turn to management professor Bob Tobias. And Bob, I guess we should tell people at the outset, of course, you were the National Treasury Employees Union president at one time. You've had deep involvement in federal employee relations management issues for many decades. So this bill, again, it doesn't have much chance, but what's your take on the thinking behind it? Well, I think basically, Tom, that it's not possible to increase agency efficiency and effectiveness, as Senator Scott says, using employee fear or protecting supervisory arbitrary action. So the law, as it's drafted, says that an employee who's about to be discharged or suspended for more than 14 days may be discharged for, quote, good cause, bad cause, or no cause. So what that means is that an employee who is about to be discharged can't argue that the facts that are being used are wrong or that the penalty that's being imposed is disproportionate to the penalties that have been given to other employees who exhibited the same behavior or assert that the discharge is based only on the fact that the supervisor doesn't like me. I do the work. I get satisfactory evaluations, but the supervisor says, I don't really like you. Now that can be sustained because the supervisor, the deciding official can't be challenged. There is one basis, one area where employees can challenge, and that's if they allege that they are being the subject of a prohibited personnel practice. And there are nine of them, but the one that's most important is the first one, which says that an employee can't be discriminated on the basis of race, color, religion, sex, or national origin, or age, or handicap. So an employee can say, I'm being discharged for one of those reasons. But what's important is that the deciding official can reject all that and say, no, you're going to be fired. You're going to be suspended for more than 14 days. And it cannot be appealed anywhere at any time. Right, because the bill does eliminate the Merit Systems Protection Board. It does. It eliminates the Merit Systems Protection Board, so that decision is final and binding and may not be appealed anywhere. So, as I mentioned, Senator Scott says it will boost the efficiency and effectiveness of the federal government. But I would say no to that for a number of reasons. And first, I would say that prior to the 1978 Civil Service Reform Act, we had in place basically what Senator Scott wants to put in place. You could appeal to the Civil Service Commission, but they never reversed. So in the run-up to the Civil Service Reform Act, when I was the general counsel of the National Treasury Employees Union, we proposed to an agency, well, you know, we would like to do advisory arbitration of adverse actions. And so we did that. So the first 13 cases, the arbitrator advised the agency to reinstate with full back pay every single one of the first 13 cases. And the agency said, no, the agency said, no, the employee remains discharged. So when we testified in connection with the Civil Service Reform Act, we said, we need 
the Merit Systems Protection Board to protect employees from arbitrary and capricious management action. And that really was one of the reasons why Congress provided for protection by having a review outside the agency process. We're speaking with Bob Tobias. He's a professor in the Key Executive Leadership Program at American University. And as you can just hear, he's done a lot of other things, too. But yet the backdrop to all of this, this current bill, and there's that big report from the Heritage Foundation, which does have a lot of detail on civil service reform. There is no one, even the unions, even the Senior Executives Association, members of Congress, no one does not feel that some kind of reform is needed 50 years on, roughly, from civil service reform. So it takes too long to hire people. There's a lot of issues with the federal civil service. What should happen now, do you think, if anything? Well, you know, I think Senator Scott's bill should be dead on arrival. Well, that's likely. (laughs) I think it should be dead on arrival. But there is, I believe, a way that civil service reform could occur. And I believe that if the union leaders management associations, and along with the administration could create a bill on which all of these folks would agree. And if Congress would say it would enact that bill, enact that recommendation without change, I believe a bill could be prepared in 90 days. The fear is that Congress, once the civil service reform idea is on the table, what we'll see is a Senator Scott bill, which nobody wants. Right. Probably not even every Republican wants that. There have been, you know, strong vociferous support for civil servants, you know, from both sides of the aisle. So what are some things that you think that the unions and management associations and and agency heads could agree on? Well, it's always the devil is in the details, but everyone agrees that the hiring system is broken. Everyone agrees that the classification system created in 1948 is outmoded and no one understands it and everyone hates it. Everyone agrees that the methodology for doing performance evaluations in the federal government is broken. So there's agreement that there are significant problems and there is agreement that people, I think, could reach agreement. But the fear of Congress, I think, just eliminates the chance of significant civil service reform. Right. There's also just the issue of not only the classifications, but the pay that goes with them, because the pay goes with classification, but not with job function, which in some cases makes the federal government not a very competitive employer. And no one's arguing that you know, a federal lawyer should get $1,000 an hour, but they get some tiny fraction of the people they're litigating against sometimes. And that seems inequitable, just to name one example. Certainly, how you classify is directly related to how you pay. And it has to be linked. There's no question that it has to be linked. But how you link it is, as I suggest, the devil is in the details to make that happen. And I think, as I said, I think it could happen. I think it could happen. And if we were really, really interested in making the federal government really competitive with the private sector in hiring and retention, it could be done. Right. And the purpose of making it competitive is so that government services and service to the citizens and the efficiency of government does increase. That's correct. 
So, you know, the last 23 years, I've been working with federal managers at American University. And I can say that these students who are mid-level managers and members of the SES and people in SES candidate development programs, they come to AU because they want to be better. They want to deliver better public service. So there's widespread desire to be better. Bob Tobias is a professor in the Key Executive Leadership Program at American University. As always, thanks so much. Thank you, Tom. And we'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on your schedule. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Still to come, the Defense Logistics Agency moves away from a legacy application in COBOL. This is the Federal Drive with Tom Tammen here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Welcome back to The Federal Drive with Tom Tammen here on Federal News Network. For the Defense Logistics Agency, the handwriting on the wall was unmistakable. It was time to move to a modern warehouse management system. The legacy system, programmed in COBOL, dated to the 1990s and was overdue for retirement. Federal News Network's Jason Miller got the details on the migration progress from DLA's Jeremy Beckwith, the Deputy Commander for Distribution, Mike Rogers, a General Supply Specialist, and Acting CIO Karen Runstrom, whom you hear first. We were coming from DSS, Distribution Standard System, and this was a 30-year-old antiquated system. And to be quite frank, you know, we were having difficulty recruiting and retraining and retaining qualified people for the COBOL or common business oriented language for that mainframe that we used. So moving to COTS moves us into, into this century, if you will. And uh, moving into COTS also allows us to integrate with newer technology. So it's not only just bringing WMS as the warehouse management system, but it integrates technologies such as autonomous ground vehicles, mobile devices, ruggedized tablets, goods-to-person equipment, all of these different features and technologies that we could never bring to life under DSS. Another big um, reason to modernize is the cost to host. So the cost to host and operate a mainframe-based system is really considerably more than hosting one of the common commercial off-the-shelf software warehouse management solutions. So therefore, our costs will go down once we actually decommission when we roll out all of those 123 sites. And then finally, as I mentioned before, but I think it's worth repeating, you know, using that COT solution improves our auditability posture for the entire agency as well as for the military services. So that's really reasons from an IT perspective. And I know from an ops perspective, the team on the line can probably offer up some more um, reasons why this modernization was um definitely necessary. As the operator of the system, really want to talk about the benefits. So you, you really taught two primary objectives of this, auditability, and then the ability to really modernize the entire distribution and disposition services infrastructure. So, you know, from an operator of the system, what we've really seen is that these new standard functionality really does strengthen those internal controls. Just by way of the structured and industrial leading built-in processes of this new warehouse management systems really resulted in improving our financial auditability. It's helped us simplify processes and, and the systems ultimately increased our, you know, our audit readiness um, and material velocity for better support to our, our warfighters and to our other DOD partners and whole of government partners. 
you know, one, one critical thing I really wanted to talk about is really the, the modernization of our infrastructure, as we really are leveraging, you know, those automated storage and retrieval systems, you know, good to person technology, that r- robotic arm picking. I, th- I think you noted the autonomous ground vehicles and augmented reality capabilities. These are all ways to bring value, not only to our customer, to, but to increase our our resource efficiency within the distribution center, we really needed a system of record that all of that additional technology could bolt onto. And our, and our previous legacy system just lacked the capability and the coding capacity to get after some of that emerging technology uh, within commercial best industry practice, which we're trying to leverage within the DOD to bring best values to our taxpayers. Um, the other great thing I saw to this is that, you know, this really challenges the status quo and, and really kind of focused, drove us to, to really look at how we were, you know, conducting business today. Um, we really got into the business of re-engineering how we did work today to make it most efficient um, and auditable simultaneously. This Mike, I can give a little bit of a disposition perspective to that as well. So for us, Property disposal really relies on the characteristics of all the property that we handle itself. That really determines who's eligible to have it, what we have to do with it, uh, what's the final outcome with the property. So the modernization of the system gives us the ability to track the characteristics of property itself. It ensures that we handle things safely and securely, that everything can go down the proper streams of disposal, whether it's reused, whether it's turned into scrap, whether it's sold to the public. So having this modernization really helps us ensure that we're doing the right thing with the material that we have. Also, accountability has, has just, it's evolved at all levels. And the modernization of the system also allows us to find efficiencies in how we handle property. It allows us to try to do more without adding costs to our labor force, to infrastructure, um, more capabilities within the system that we never had before allow us to to be better prepared for the future. I just want to jump in and go back to something that Jeremy said, and also I think uh, something that Karen uh, said as well. First of all, Karen, you were saying that this was a 30-year-old system, COBOL-based. It was hard to find people who actually remembered COBOL. Did, had you all tried the modernization before, or what kind of was that last straw, for lack of a better word, that got you down that path that was able to get the funding, to the business case worked. Was there anything specific that happened or is it just, you know, it, it was time and, and everyone kind of recognized it? Yeah, it was time. And it was probably past time, if I'm being honest. And we did um, a lot of studies for over probably a two to three year period to determine what was the best solution for DLA going forward. And, you know, the WMS COTS program is, is what we came to end with after we did, you know, risk analysis, we did, you know, all type of analyses to determine which way to move forward. But it, it was definitely time. <laughs> the other side of it, and I was glad to hear Jeremy say this, because Jeremy, a lot of times the concern is folks do these modernization efforts, but don't, but keep the same processes. Can you give me, you know, an example for lack of a better word, or, or some, some idea of how, how you went about changing your business processes? Because sometimes that's harder than the technology piece. Because it's, oh, this is what we've always done. And now we have to do something differently. And and people, as you well know, don't always like that change. 
So one of the biggest advantages of this particular system, it really leverages um, storage efficiency within the distribution center. Under our legacy system, when, when our receivers would, would bring in an item, you know, they would verify the material and they would measure it and document its dimensional characteristics. And then it was up to that operator to determine where that material should be stowed in, into its final or, or resting place until a warfighter requested it. You know, that was kind of one of the things that I saw. How do we take the human error out of this? So why not we, we actually provide what they call a planograph um, where every single location has discrete, you know, weight limitations, capabilities, characteristics, uh, unique storage configuration. Is it hazard? Is it radiological? You know, if it's hazardous, is it flammable or is it an oxidizer? You know, you clearly want to to separate those two things. And then I wanted to take it, you know, kind of a step forward. Why don't we let the system of record determine the most efficient way of storing that material uh, within the distribution warehouses? And we're actually starting to see that. You know, there's things, you know. This new system of record brings velocity zonings to bear, and, and all of that is now all system-based, triggered by capability and configuration of the system to eliminate really those human-driven decisions prior uh, to really kind of leverage uh, that system going out. Also looking to standardize a lot of things within this particular new warehouse management system. You know, under DSS, uh, our legacy system, we we're kind of limited by the amount of decisions that the system could make so it was really, you know, how do we start trusting into our warehouse management system to make the most effective decisions going in? You know, initially people are like, eh, you know, computers can make errors too, right? If it's not co configured and coded to discrete perfection, we're going to start injecting errors, you know, into our system. So that was one of the really bigger, uh, bigger changes I saw. Um, was that shift to let's put our effort up front configuring a system that's capable of making the most effective decisions for our operations and then trusting the system to actually do that. Karen Rundstrom is the acting chief information officer. Jeremy Beckwith is the deputy commander for distribution. And Mike Rogers is a general supply specialist, all at the Defense Logistics Agency. Speaking with Federal News Network's Jason Miller. Find the complete interview and more episodes of Ask the CIO at federalnewsnetwork.com. The 2023 edition of our May We Say Thank You campaign continues in support of Public Service Recognition Week just passed and Military Appreciation Month. You can send a thank you e-card to a fellow federal employee or a service member or a customer if you're a contractor. Visit federalnewsnetwork.com and click on May We Say Thank You, sponsored by NARF. 57 past the hour. This is The Federal Drive with Tom Temin. For the latest updates, stay with federalnewsnetwork.com or follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. Up next, the top national headlines from CBS News and The Federal Newscast. I'm Tom Temin. Drive with Tom Temin. Hello and thanks for joining us on this Friday, May 19th, 2023, seven minutes past the hour. 
I'm Tom Temin. Our producers are Eric White and Peter Masurlian. Our digital editors, Daisy Thornton and Darris Lauderdale. Coming up in this hour of The Federal Drive, a longtime federal employee advocate reacts to the latest civil service reform gambit coming from the Senate. Plus, what exactly is organic food? The USDA wants to make sure everyone follows the rules. Those stories and much more ahead during this hour of The Federal Drive. But first, Navy officials think they've got some answers to the fix our computers problem. Answers can't come soon enough. Officials estimate the service is wasting about one man-year of every single day just by virtue of how long it takes for employees to log on to their PCs. And that's just inside the Pentagon. Federal News Network's Jared Serbu has an update on the fixes the Navy's planning. The Navy's current attempt at improving user experience will also start inside the Pentagon, where almost all of its users could start seeing vast improvements by next month. That's partly because for even the most senior leaders there, the experience right now isn't great. Captain Sean O'Lone is the senior military assistant to the Department of the Navy CIO. The CNO sent my previous boss, Aaron Weiss, an email like two weeks in a row of, my computer sucks. It takes me 10 minutes to log in. I got all these problems, right? And so when the CNO starts emailing the CIO directly about his personal experience, we got to do something about that. We got to fix that. The fixes could start as soon as next week. Over the next two weeks, the Navy plans to roll out new devices with new network connectivity methods to 50 of its most demanding IT users in the Pentagon. Those devices will be managed by Flank Speed, the Navy's instantiation of Microsoft 365. Alone says one big difference is the new devices will come with a much more streamlined set of software. When it comes to poor user experience, officials think software bloat is a much bigger problem than outdated hardware. There's lots of discussion about, well, if I just upgrade the hardware or I need to double the RAM in my computer or if I had a faster processor or all these different things. And there's lots of great theories about that's just going to solve all my problems. But in the end, we just have a ton of stuff on those devices and they are wiping it and putting just a clean Windows version on it without a whole bunch of excess stuff. And it is performing far, far better. So it is not that end device that is really holding us back. It's not about the RAM. It's not about that. It's that we just loaded it down with a whole bunch of stuff. And we get a cleaner machine we will get way better performance. Another big difference, the new devices will, by and large, bypass the Navy Marine Corps intranet and use a more direct path to the public internet to access flank speed, which is hosted in a Microsoft cloud environment. That's partly a lesson learned from the Navy's experience with COVID. When the Defense Department rolled out Commercial Virtual Remote, the predecessor to the military service's current Microsoft 365 environments, Navy officials quickly found out that the user experience was vastly better when people were working from home than when they tried to use the cloud services at work via NMCI. Olone says if the initial tests go as planned, the Navy plans to convert all of its Pentagon users to the new flank speed-based devices by June 15th. But replicating that transition for the rest of the Navy's users is potentially much more complicated. That's mainly because of what IT officials say is a big last-mile connectivity problem on Navy bases, where communications infrastructure tends to be fairly ancient and still uses circuits based on decades-old time-division multiplexing technology. Skip Heiser is the CIO for the Navy's Fleet Forces Command. I think we've done a pretty good job on the shore side 
upgrading the, the off-base transport, getting to the MPLS routers, that infrastructure has really shown a great improvement. Then we hit the installation. And the challenge we have with installations now is they're decades old stuff in the ground. And it might be twisted pear, copper, it might be fiber, it might be single mode fiber, it might be multi-mode fiber, it might be, it's a variety of stuff. So what happens is you got this, this great transport that hits the base boundary, the installation boundary, and then it gets dumped into this soup sandwich with a variety of stuff. We took a look at it. If we try to upgrade all the installations and their infrastructure, billions of dollars. It's just not in the budget. So what's the alternative? And, and uh, it might be new construction. Uh, there might be hybrid solutions. You might do fiber. You might do wireless, things like that. It really takes each individual base surveyed to understand that infrastructure in the base and how you're going to upgrade it. Heiser says wireless technologies like 5G might be an answer that can be quickly deployed in some places at relatively low cost. In others, even wireless is very difficult, though. We talked about the Pentagon. What's the challenge with the Pentagon? Maybe I just throw 5G in there and everybody's online. No. The Pentagon, also like my Maritime Operations Center, is like a Faraday cage. 5G doesn't penetrate very far into the building. So what I may end up doing is I have to put a lot of nodes, a lot of wireless points in that facility to be able to extend that. So we really have to understand the infrastructure, what has to be done. It may be using the existing stuff. It may be upgrading the stuff. It might be a wireless solution. But Justin Finelli, the technical director for the Navy's program executive office for digital and enterprise services, says the Navy's committed to solving those last mile problems and everything else that's hampering user experience. He says the Navy has 21 pilot projects underway on the topic this year, with the last mile problem as one of its main features. We want to take the burden off of the IT. So customer experience is number one, and then operational resilience, peacetime, wartime, we need to be more resilient. That includes things like diversity. Those are the two mission outcomes that IT should be invisible in the background solving. And so the way that we have that conversation with every single vendor at this point is how do you help? What are your dependencies? And what is the overall impact to user time lost? That's number one. The cost per user overall. We aren't trying to drive that to zero, but we want to make sure that that's in a reasonable range. We all know how much tech debt there is. If we can kill, if we can cattle drive things down, we can have that cost per user in a reasonable range. And the time that we're losing when we're uh, eking out or we're waiting for that, maybe we go get a coffee, maybe our morale declines just a little bit, right? So we're, we're firing each other up and we have more energy for the reason that we're doing these jobs if this is invisible in the background. Jared Serbu, Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Check out Jared's story at federalnewsnetwork.com. Still to come, what exactly is organic food? The USDA wants to make sure everyone follows the rules. This is The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. 